Good evening. Thank you, Evan. Great job. Take your Bibles. Turn with me this evening to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 15. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I got strangled. In our last <coughs> hot topic message, we, I'm still not over it yet. <coughs> we examined what do Christians need to understand about the Trinity. We believe that one God exists in three persons. Not three persons, no. We believe that God exists as one entity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not three entities or three beings. He is the trinity of persons consisting of one substance and one essence. God the Father, we know about him. God the Son, we know even better about him. But God the Holy Spirit, now that's a different story. Uh, he is the God that most people hardly know. In Acts chapter 19, <clears throat> when the apostle Paul made his first visit to Ephesus, he met some of the disciples, John the Baptist. And when he asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed, they replied with total honesty. They said, no, we have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Many Christians in our own day could probably say just about the same thing. In the light of our last study on the Trinity, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force at work in the universe. So to be filled with a spirit <clears throat> is not something that we can simply recite some formula and poof, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Rather, it is an aspect of our relationship with the triune God through his indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, it would be hardly possible for me to cover everything the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit in one message. So, I want to try to confine this study to the question, how can I be filled with the Spirit? We as Baptists are a little bit afraid of this whole notion of being filled by the Holy Spirit because of the extremes that some have taken of what it means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Vance Havner said some people are so afraid of getting out on a limb with the Holy Spirit that they won't even go near the tree. Now, that's probably true. Ignorance and fear can keep Christians from having all the power that they need to live out the Christian faith. Now, there are two different views on the work of the Holy Spirit in the church today. First of all, there is the charismatic view. If you have not been asked the question, have you been filled with the Spirit, with the manifestation of speaking in tongues, you probably will be at some point. How did you or how would you answer that question? Have you been filled with the Spirit with the manifestation of speaking in tongues? Several assumptions are held by our 
charismatic and Pentecostal brethren? The answer to the question is yes and no. If you are saved, then yes, you have been baptized into the body of Christ. The only verse that specifically speaks to that is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That verse says, For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. So yes... I have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, but no, there was no manifestation of speaking in tongues because none is necessary. Now, I'm going to cover that subject next time in our study about <clears throat> our, what Christians need to understand about speaking in tongues. Tonight, I just want to look at the aspect of what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit, First, although the previous question sounds like it's scriptural when they ask you that, have you been filled with the Spirit, with the manifestation of speaking in tongues? That sounds scriptural, but there is no scripture that backs that claim up. There is no scripture where we're told a believer must speak in tongues as a sign of being filled with the Spirit. There are a couple of things I think we ought to note. First is there is the contention among our charismatic brethren who say, well, you may be saved without being baptized by the Holy Spirit, but you are not fully sanctified and you are not, expect, you're not experiencing all the power of the Holy Spirit. They believe that... <clears throat> The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second act of grace in a believer's life that occurs at some subsequent point to being saved. After you've been saved, then at some subsequent time, you become filled with the Spirit. And they hold that there are several conditions that have to be met in order for this to be achieved. First of all, you have to be saved. That's a good, good point. Secondly, you must be living on obedience, i.e., perfect submission. Uh oh, that left a bunch of us out when we got to that perfect part. Perfect submission. Third, we must ask. And fourth, we have to tarry, we have to wait, we have to believe that. And they believe that it is proper for us to wait and tarry and pray that we will receive this. Second blessing. Of course, then there is the non-charismatic view. To understand the non-charismatic view, we need to point out the differences between the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They are not exactly the same. Some believe, as I already said, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace They believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that takes place after you're saved, and the evidence of that is your ability to speak in tongues. However, the baptism of the Holy Spirit refers to the work of regeneration, that is, saving us and uniting us to Christ. That's how we become Christians. When we are saved, 
our Bible tells us that then, then we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When a person trusts Jesus as their Savior through repentance and faith, the Holy Spirit baptizes them and adds them to the body of Christ. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is foretold by Jesus in John chapter 14. He says in chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him nor know him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Being filled with the Holy Spirit, though, is more than just being indwelt. We are all baptized by the Holy Spirit when we got saved. We are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit when we became a believer. He, beca- he came into us. He becomes a part of us. He's always with us. So we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but that's not the same as the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have your little outline that I put in the bulletin this morning, you have on one side baptism, and on the other side you have filling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, filling with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit only occurs once. The filling of the Holy Spirit can be a repeated experience throughout your lifetime. The baptism of the Holy Spirit never happened before the day of Pentecost. And the filling of the Holy Spirit even occurred in the Old Testament. As we saw Old Testament believers who were filled for specific purposes by God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is true of every believer. The filling of the Holy Spirit, however, is not true of every person. It may not occur. The first, the baptism results in a change in position. I become a child of God. The second results in power. The first occurs when we believe, and the second can occur throughout our Christian life. The first requires faith, filling depends upon our yieldedness. There's the problem. Now, some practical problems, practical questions immediately come to mind when we think of the Holy Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit. What is the filling of the Holy Spirit? What difference does it make? How does it happen? Well, here's where we're going to look at that scripture together, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dispensation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to understand about the filling of the Spirit. First of all, the counterfeit of being filled in the Spirit. 
he says, do not be drunk with wine. There is a command against drunkenness. Now, we must not think that the only state of fall that we're talking about being a problem here is falling down drunk. Falling down drunk is not the only sin involved with drinking. Being impaired in any way by drinking is a sin. As well as drinking with the intention of being impaired. The reason for this, says Paul, is that it leads to debauchery or, in our terms of today, wild and unrestrained behavior. We would say out-of-control behavior. Let me give you that verse in a couple of different translations. The New International Version says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The New Living Translation gives a slightly different wording. It says, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. Now, the basic point of the verse is that there is a direct parallel between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. What precisely is the point of that comparison between wine and the Holy Spirit? The issue is influence or control. Physical drunkenness is a fraudulent attempt on the part of Satan to counterfeit the experience of living a spirit-filled life. In reality, the real point of Ephesians chapter 8 and verse chapter 5 and verse 18 doesn't have much to do as much to do with intoxication as it does with the control of the Holy Spirit. I think it's suggestive, however, that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a physician before he became a pastor, has this to say about that subject. He says, drink is not a stimulant, it is a depressant. It depresses first and foremost the highest centers in the brain. They're the very first to be influenced and affected by drink. They control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest is the part of which the brain controls here. The Bible does have some pretty graphic words to describe drunkenness in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 29 through verse 35. I'm going to read it to you in one of the newer translations. It says, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has conflicts, who has complaints, who has wounds for no reason, who has red eyes, those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine. Don't gaze, don't gaze at wine because it is red when it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and you will say absurd things. You will be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast. They struck me, but I feel no pain. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When will I wake up? Then I'll look for another drink. 
I've been told that I am death on alcohol. I think that may be a little extreme, uh, but I don't see any logical reason why a Christian should consume alcohol. And I don't want, however, this to be a treatise on drinking, but I do think I need to make a few points about drinking because of this reference. First, if we're going to understand, we have to understand, come to a biblical view of alcoholic beverages in the Bible. And we have to, to do that, we have to understand the Bible historically. Was the wine in the Bible the same as wine today? And the answer is no. No. The alcohol can, content was much less because it was diluted. According to secular authorities now, people in Bible times would dilute their wine, usually two parts water to one part wine, which would reduce the alcohol content less to two and a half percent. Today's drinks, whether you're talking about strong mixed drinks or wine or beer, Average consumption of those, they all are three times as strong as the average drink we're talking about in the Bible. The reason for this mixture was very practical. Pure drinking water was scarce. People in the ancient world discovered that the alcohol in wine killed enough of the harmful bacteria in the water to make it acceptable. However, the resulting mixture was more like water than it was wine. At this alcohol level, the average person would have to consume nearly a gallon of the mixture in order to become intoxicated. The same is true of other varieties of wine in the Bible. Mixed wine, which you heard me speak there in Proverbs 23.30, was wine that was flavored with other herbs and strong drink, which is referred to in Deuteronomy 14, was the fermented juice of other fruits. Strong refers to the flavor, not to the alcoholic content. In every case, the wine was diluted with water. It's the use of undiluted wine with its deep red color that the Bible condemns as dangerous. The goal in the ancient world was to reduce the alcoholic content of the beverages. The modern world seems to have just the opposite, to try to increase the amount of alcohol in the beverages. In our world, good drinking water is virtually available everywhere. Instead, most people who drink alcoholic beverages do so either because they like the effect of the alcohol or because they want to be accepted by others. Alcohol today is not as much a beverage as it is a planned intoxicant, exactly what is the use that is prohibited by the Bible. While the Bible does not prohibit the use of wine for people in general, I wish it just said, thou shalt not drink alcohol. 
it would make it a lot easier. But that's based on the assumption of a proper dilution of the substance. Now, there are three classes of people for whom no amount of alcohol is allowed whatsoever. The priest serving in the tabernacle were not to use alcohol lest it hinder their ability to communicate the truth of God's word. Kings were not to use alcohol lest it distort their ability to discern what is right. And Nazarites were not to use alcohol lest it deter their dedication to the Lord. Unless we think this only applies to Old Testament people, we need to remember that in chapter 1 of Revelation, we are called priests and kings in God's kingdom. And if this was true of that which was demanded of his servants in that day, why should it be less today? The second thing, and now we're off the alcohol, the characteristics of being filled with the Spirit. To understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit, we have to look at the Greek construction. I know, I know, you're thinking, oh boy, more Greek. I love Greek. I know that you don't, but try to contain your excitement for just a moment. This really will help you understand what this means. First of all, it's an imperative, which means it's a command. It's not just a suggestion. In the Greek language, this verb is in the imperative mood. This means that being filled with the Spirit is not an optional part of the Christian life. If there is a clear command in the Word of God and you choose not to obey it, then that is disobedience and that is sin. So I hate to put it this way because it hits me as hard as it hits you. If we are not living in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are out of God's will. Secondly, it is plural, which means it's a command to every Christian, not to just a few, not just to the pastoral staff. It's, a, it's not just a spiritual option for a privileged few. It is to be the normal Christian experience. It is also in the present tense, which means it is a continuous process. It is not a permanent state. You are never going to reach a, a point of sanctification at which you will no longer need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Literally, the command says, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. In his book entitled Balancing the Christian Life, Dr. Charles Rivery of Dallas Theological Seminary says, in other words, a Christian may be filled and filled and filled again. This was illustrated in the experience of the apostles during the early days of the church. On the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 4. A short time later, after a prayer meeting for boldness, the same group was filled again, Acts chapter 4, verse 31. It's interesting and important to notice that the apostles did not need to be filled this second time 
because of some specific sin that had come into their lives after the day of Pentecost. Their second filling was necessary because they needed control of a new area. They needed boldness. They needed boldness in the face of a new problem, the prohibition to speak by the Sanhedrin. It is also in passive voice. That means being filled with the Spirit is something that the Holy Spirit does to us, not something that we do to ourselves. It's a matter of control. It is not getting more of the Holy Spirit. It is Him getting more of you. You got all of the Holy Spirit when he baptized you into the body and he indwelt you permanently. You have all of the Holy Spirit. It's not you're getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's getting more of us. The filling of the Holy Spirit is God receiving more of your surrender, not you receiving more of the Spirit. When you come to Jesus Christ, you receive all of God that you will ever receive. The filling of the Holy Spirit is marked by definite, recognizable traits. We find that in the book of Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. So there is a sign that you've been filled by the Holy Spirit, but it is not the sign of speaking in tongues. It is the sign of having the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Although speaking in tongues is listed as one of the spiritual gifts Nowhere is it given as one that every believer should possess. And as I said, I'll talk about speaking in tongues on our next hot topic subject. The filling of the Spirit results in an absolute control of the believer's life of the Holy Spirit when that life is yielded to Christ. Let me give you an example of how I think it happens. Whether we're in church or we're at home, we recognize that there is some difficulty in our life, some area in our life that we have not given control of to the Lord. And so we give it to him. We say, Lord, I, I know I haven't been faithful in the area of finances or whatever, and you give it over to him. Or you say, Lord, I recognize that your word says that I'm not to be anxious, I'm not to, be wor- I'm not to worry all the time, and so I'm going to give over that to you. And then two days later, you realize what? You went over and you picked it right back up and you put it right back in your pocket. You got the worry all over again. And that's why we say it's his control over you that we're talking about when we're talking about the Holy Spirit of God and being filled by the Holy Spirit of God. The last thing I want you to see is the confirmation of being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. I remember in verse 18 how Paul drew a parallel between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit, just as there is evidence when you are under the control of alcohol, there is an evidence of when you are under the control of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of uh, the Spirit's filling, the Spirit-filled life is marked by three things that we, I kind of categorized them at. Number one, it's manifested in corporate worship. I don't think that he means that when we speak to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual song that we go around quoting song lyrics to each other. We are filled with the Spirit. We have a desire to worship God, and we have a desire to encourage others in their worship of God. He says there are psalms. Sometimes we forget about the fact that the psalms of the Old Testament were written as songs. They were intended for worship. They were written to be sung. Hymns are the songs that are written by men and women who sat down with the intention of creating a song to honor God and to teach believers. Spiritual songs, a good definition of these would be sometimes the simple choruses of praise that we learn. Most of what we today call praise choruses would probably fit in that category. There is praise, secondly, and third, it will lead to thanksgiving. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When are we to be thankful? Always. For what what are we to be thankful for? All things. How are we to be thankful? In the name of Jesus To whom are we be thankful? We are to be thankful to God the Father. In one of his books, F.B. Meyer explained the Spirit's feeling this way. He said that most people think of the Spirit as a substance to fill us like gas filling up a tank. And so we run out of the Spirit and God fills us again. But that really may not be the best image to use. Think about the elevated trains that you find in many large cities. Those trains run on three rails, two for the wheels and one for electricity. The electricity is always there, but the train doesn't move unless there is contact with the third rail. Touch that rail, and the train moves. Pull away from that rail, and it stops. The third rail is like the Holy Spirit. His power is always there. His power is always available. Unlike our local utilities here, which that can't be said of, there's never a power shortage, and there's never a brownout. But sometimes we live out of contact with his power. And when that happens, our lives stop working the way they ought to. And we must once again make contact with the Holy Spirit if we're going to have him control our lives. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, it's difficult sometimes to make a complex subject.
comprehensible to help us to understand something that's so difficult sometimes and yet it is possible for us to understand and so often we operate without the power that could be ours if we would just allow the Holy Spirit to have control of our lives if when we looked and when we prayed about our lives and you show us areas that need to be changed If we would turn that over to you and allow the Holy Spirit to control our lives, our lives would go so much more smoothly. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to find that control in our lives and to exhibit the truth that we've seen here tonight, these wonderful things that are the fruit of the Spirit, which we will see in our lives if we are truly filled with the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand with us?